1: Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and A member FDIC.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today are doctors Ayelet Zoha and Alison Miller, whose new edited volume, The Visual Culture of Meiji Japan, Negotiating the Transition to Modernity, was just published through Rutledge. The chapters in this volume examine social transformations in Japan's Meiji period as were reflected in various forms of visual materials. Uh, uh, Dr. Zohar is an art historian at Tel Aviv University in Israel, and Dr. Miller is also an art historian at the University of the South. So welcome, um, Elliot and Allison. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: (laughs) Nice to be here. Thank you for having
3: us it was a wonderful book to uh, read. And I really, um, I have a lot of questions for you. But uh, before we dive into the book, can you tell us about uh, what your research focused on? And how did you become interested in these topics? How did you become art historians? So um, I am an art historian
1: who's basically an artist. I started my career as a, a practicing artist and uh, also a great lover of Japanese art. And therefore, when coming to look into Japanese art from an art historian point of view, I naturally, for me, you know, took the photography as a main issue. So my main uh, research in recent years was focusing on contemporary art. But as I proceeded with my research, I was looking into the sources and the origins of photography in Japan. And hence started to look into the Meiji era as the time when photography first landed on the Isles and started to become a major medium that um, images were produced through. And through photography and the production of images, I became more and more interested in the cultural atmosphere of Japan in the Meiji era and the um, way modernity and different influences reached Japan, how they were interpreted, assimilated and reused within the context of Japanese culture.
2: Um, I came to the Meiji period because I've long been very interested in politics, and um, I've been really interested in how politics are expressed in visual culture. So when I was in uh, both undergrad and in grad school, I really kind of came to Japanese art as a fascination, and I've also held a long interest in that um, from going to museums really growing up and seeing a lot of different Japanese visual culture. So I came to all of these things um, in grad school as a, a way to kind of overlap a lot of my interests. So I'm interested in visual culture, politics, but also women and gender studies. And I think that the Meiji period and Meiji visual culture really exemplifies how a lot of those things intersect and interact in the public forum. Um, so I've been Um, studying not just Meiji visual culture, but the the visual culture of the early 20th century as well, and how um, visual culture can be a means of expressing a lot of different social and political identities.
3: That's wonderful. And I loved how how you are able to bring into perspectives um, on the extension of your interest into this book. It really uh, discusses Meiji period visual culture from really multiple perspectives. And I think our readers will really benefit from it. Um, And yeah, and the book itself is beautifully printed, lots of images in there. Um, So Alison, can you tell us uh, about how this volume came to be? Yeah so um in
2: 2018 there was a conference in Tel Aviv on Meiji visual culture it was a Meiji at, it wasn't just visual culture but on the Meiji period uh, Meiji at 150 and um that came out of the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. Um, There were a lot of different events globally, but this one specific um, conference brought together um, a variety of different scholars and many of the essays in the book, the chapters in the book came out of that conference, but not all of them. So Ayala and I connected um, and she invited me to do this volume after the conference. And we started working at that point to really um, think about how we could express a diverse variety of perspectives and how we could bring in a lot of different perspectives that were beyond kind of some of the older narratives or more established ideas around Meiji visual culture. Um, so we invited a few different people in, um, and, um, just started working from there.
1: Ayala, do you have more to add to that? Yeah. Um, so the, the, My interest in the Meiji era had another facet to it, and it's uh, about being Israeli. Um, I realized that the 19th century was also um, the point where the idea, the Zionist idea of making um, a national home for the Jewish people in Asia became very significant. I grew up in an atmosphere of people who immigrated from Europe into Western Asia, and when I started to study the Meiji era more carefully, I realized that the idea of Europe was also very important to the people of Meiji, and they were struggling in, in within this um, tension between Asia and Europe, and how Japan is residing within this, this tension, and sort of being reflected in my own personal upbringing and, um, you know, the history of the place where I reside, I realized that there were a lot of uh, points that were overlapping between the Japanese point of view in the 19th century and what was uh, becoming the state of Israel eventually in the 19th century in this uh, territory. And so, when I made this conference in the first place, in the very, very first stages, I was the organizer of this conference. I was thinking about um, the tension between West Asia and East Asia and how that became something, you know, how these two ants had imagined Europe to become part of their way of modernity. And when I was... Developing this idea and, you know, wanted to have more people coming in. I decided that the core, the the title of the, um, core, um, conference was Europe in the Japanese Imagination and Japan in the European Imagination. And so it was very important for me to understand, to, to proceed or to develop these ideas about, what people imagine about the other and how they represent that and how these processes of and especially in modernity and the the way japan proceeded through the meiji era was becoming very important therefore the papers already selected for the conference reflected in this way or another this tension between what we imagine to be what we adapt to become what is the the, the process that is making and of course as an art historian my personal focus was on the visual culture and when i invited alison to join me in this process we were thinking along these ideas you know the imagination the visual how people negotiated the different Um, threads, histories, to become part of what they were planning to be their modernity. And so it was very loaded from many angles about this, one could say, global process of becoming national, uh, establishing the state, imagining what um, modernity was, how uh, processes of the modern the modernist processes, including colonialism and including capitalism, and including a variety of processes that defined modernity for different people at different times. So um, that was a kind of a core point for me to start this process with. And I do think if I can kind of just add to that, I think that
2: one of the things that the book does really well is not just a diversity in the subjects that are covered, but the perspectives of the authors. So we have a lot of people coming from um, different backgrounds, different regional backgrounds um, and different disciplinary backgrounds. And I think that bringing a lot of those variety of perspectives together um, is a, a real strength of this volume.
3: Yes, and I found that very fascinating. And um, I I was uh, very interested in this point of modernity because to a lot of people, um, whether familiar or not with uh, the history of Japan, the Meiji period or the Meiji Restoration is often seen as the dividing point be- between Japan's pre-modernity and modernity. So um, from your perspective um, of art history, how would you... Um, describe the significance of the Meiji period or how would you characterize uh, Japan's art before and after the Meiji restoration if there's such a thing as a dividing point? Okay,
1: so um, I would say that um, we normally speak about early modern Japan from the Edo period not from Meiji. But nevertheless, the Meiji period marks the filtering in the entry of new media like photography, oil painting, and other forms that influence the point of view in Japan and the practices in Japan. And therefore, it is important to think, you know, For example, with photography, when it arrived in Japan, it was a very young medium. Photography was invented in 1839. The first cameras were arriving in Japan in 1848, First image produced in 1853. That's barely 15 years after the medium was invented. So it's a very interesting cross point between a young medium that doesn't really have any history to it, or you know, it's still kind of nascent and very much linked to the culture of the oil painting and the um, the, the culture of the singular point of view, which is dominant in Western art. And now practitioners in Japan are trying to use this medium, this box, this camera obscura, you know, and produce images. But they bring a different experience and different point of view. So, and for example, one of the things that really fascinated me when I started my research into these areas was the fact that for many Japanese, oil painting and photography with very similar media, they seem to be, Based on the same kind of gaze, you know, the window through which you look into reality, the the emphasis on the depiction of the real, etc., and so negotiating these um, point of view into the culture of representation that was dominant in Japan at the time created very interesting, um, I would say, translation or transformation or um, a kind of shift in the media that created a whole new version that was linked to the Japanese experience or Japanese point of view. So whether you look at yoga or photography, or even if we take a later stage like Nihonga, the development of a style that kind of combined together or tried to adopt certain points of view within The materiality and the practices of the past, what happened is that Japan actually produced a series of new approaches to even classical media as we know it, like oil painting, or creating new approaches to new media like photography, or even creating a new platform to kind of talk or reconsider all these three together like in the Nihonga. So when we're talking about the arts of Japan in the 19th century, I think the most important and most interesting point is how different medium media have entered the field, the sphere of Japan and where repossessed, reinterpreted, given different values, and reused in a different way to what we normally identify with um, the Western arts, and now being um, assimilated into a Japanese way of thinking and producing of images, which becomes really a fascinating field. Um, I can give one example from my own research, and um, it touches upon, well, it's not in this book, but I will go back to my what I wrote in the book, but I have been researching um, images of the sun and how Japanese photographers directed their camera to the sun, either through sun eclipses or um, different um, uh, phases of the moon, also, you know, um, um, different ways of representing the um, celestial uh, bodies, celestial objects. Now, the experience started with American and some European scientists coming to Japan to take pictures of the passage of Venus across the sun or to take pictures of sun eclipses in different times and periods and even stations in Nagasaki or Koshiro in uh, Hokkaido, etc., But the Japanese, who actually first in first place joined them in the process of, so to speak, scientific uh, photography of um, the sun images and the eclipse, etc., and the scientific discourse, very soon connected that to the tradition of representation of the sun and the moon in Japanese painting. This famous the hazy moon image, which is predominant in the 18th century in Japan. And you can see how the images of the scientific research all of a sudden turn into an aesthetic series of images that actually cross between science and art and making a whole new way of representation that exceeds the Western discourse of photography per science or the classical images of paintings and coming up with something that introduces photography in a painterly format. So this is an interesting example to think of how photography can function in a completely different sphere to what we normally, uh, or at least the 19th century, assigned different roles of photography to be used like. And the example that I have in the book is uh, how photography is becoming An apparatus of colonialism, which is for me definitely one important part of modernity, the idea of the nation and then the idea of the strong nation becoming a colonial power and proceeding outwards. So in the article I present in the book, I look at the uh, takeover, the Kaitaku process, the uh, occupation of Hokkaido, and how the photography actually represents or brings back the idea of Japan as a modern power taking over a territory that now was assimilated into the discourses of a new nation with colonial power, with the ability to expand and proceed outwards, etc., So um, just to sum up this uh, idea, so if you look at the arts of Meiji, they give us a very interesting opportunity to look at what happens when a medium travels across from one culture, from one context, from one history into another one. And then how it is being utilized or manifested within the context of the history of the media, of the history of the arts in that new territory to become something which is different from where it came from in the first place.
2: I think Thank that you, there's Rae, a lot I of. Um, that...
1: Go ahead. Sorry.
2: Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, I think there's a lot of. Interesting resonances in some ways. I I see um, on the flip side of that too. So if we think a little bit about, for example, woodblock prints or um, Mary Redfern's chapter on ceramics, there's a lot of historic media in Japan that also incorporated new ideas um, in the in the Meiji period. So I think it's an interesting thing when we talk about Meiji to consider new media adopting old styles, but also Old media adopting new styles, and I think that's what to me is really fascinating: is this hybridity and this idea of um, how to assimilate and what to assimilate um, as far as you know new forms of art coming in and out. Yeah.
3: So speaking of these I chapters, can keep going, what or if you wanted to <laughs> go on course, to the next yes. question? <laughs> is... Yeah. Um, Yeah, let's um, actually talk (laughs) about hybridity and how it's reflected in these chapters. Um, So what topics do these chapters cover? And you mentioned, so hybridity is a very important aspect in your discussion of magic visual culture. So um, how do the chapters reflect this main theme of, well, I guess themes of modernity and, uh, hybridity, I guess.
2: Okay. So I think, um, specifically it's interesting to look at perhaps the idea of the dinner table negotiations chapter, which talks about, um, ceramics and how there's, um, the importance of incorporating different, um, visual themes that would be representative of Japan in a um, diplomatic forum, or we can think about um, Katharina Rhodes chapter on um, modern Japanese painting and how there was an interest in creating a national painting. So how different artists, and I mean, I think Eugenia's chapter that also talks about Meiji calligraphy is important because it talks about more than just the idea of Japan and what we can call the West, but also Eugenia's chapter focuses on Japan and how they were looking at China as well. So it's, you know, sometimes we, in the past, I think scholars have talked about Japan and Europe or the United States, but there was also, you know, a lot of other cultural influences and ideas that were in and out. So I think looking at it in a a really global way is very important. Um, and that kind of ties back to the ideas that we that um, Ayala talked about with the conference and thinking about um, these imagined ideas of what nation could be in the 19th century. So I think that you know the the visual the idea of visual culture and hybridity is you know in some ways easy to see, but I think if we think about um, how it was interpreted or understood or how it was really being negotiated. And then manifests itself in that visual culture. There's a lot of interesting stories to tell, and a lot of interesting stories that are in the book um, throughout.
1: Yeah, and I think that one aspect that I wanted to emphasize and think and feels to me really important is the idea of um, this hybridity or this kind of uh, process being expressed through the colonial project of Japan. So, on one way, um, so uh, Wu Qingxin's uh, chapter is looking into watercolor Japanese watercolor artist coming to Taiwan. And producing images of the place as a sort of bringing Western cultures through Japanese filter to Taiwan, to a Chinese territory, and trying to negotiate between these three ideas. So, you know, China, which has been such a strong and central power in the Japanese imagination and practices for a millennia and more is now becoming sort of a a minor power, but still very important for the identity of Japan. So the negotiation around the Chinese um, aspect is also really interesting and important, which comes through these two chapters. And on the other hand, um, the chapter by Michael Lacken is looking at a complete imaginary position when Japan is trying to produce an imaginary statement, I would say in quotation marks, of being a part of the Greek culture. The, Le Japon grec is the original name of his uh, essay. And uh, he kind of, of reflects On the idea that some Japanese scholars and intellectuals in the 19th century felt the urge to establish a link between Japan and the ancient Greeks, because the ancient Greek was perceived to be the origin of Western culture, and if Japan wanted to be associated with that part of, the global um, affair, then it must have some links to the Greek culture. And so there was an effort to establish this point of view, which I find fascinating and not obvious at all, simply because it was um, transferred through German eyes and the German influence on this idea was very significant. On the other hand, uh, Michio Hayashi's chapter is um, looking inside within Japanese culture and looking at the idea of the katakana, the writing system that was always not fully associated with a specific discourse. So, for example, we normally associate hiragana with with women, with female style, or with children. It's uh, kind of an easy writing, while the kanji is intellectual, it's difficult, it's associated with China. And where is the katakana exa- exactly, is kind of opening a third space. And this is what um, Mityo did in this chapter, by actually producing the katakana as, as a metaphor to what happened in Meiji, and how... The establishment of this third script as a point of convergence, of meeting, of the ambivalence of the katakana that can serve for modern girls' names, but will be the script for poor. Um, farmers in the Edo period writing to their daimyo etc and this transitional position of the katakana is very symbolic about processes within Japan not just influence from other cultures or negotiating the relationship between Japan and China or Japan and Greece, Japan and Um, other uh, powers, but actually looking within the Japanese context of what could have been um, a possibility for um, this kind of ambivalent position within the culture.
3: This kind of connects to my next question, which is something I've been uh, recently very interested in, is the contrast of Japan as the East versus the West. It's kind of a well, it's, it's quite a popular topic in the studies of early modern Japan, but as some of the chapters in this volume demonstrate, like the, um, the, the, the chapters you just introduced, the East and the West were not always exclusive of, of each other. So can you briefly tell us how this notion of the East versus the West came to be at the time and how the chapters in this volume argue otherwise?
1: So I think that, you know, um, Michio had a a brilliant title for his talk. I'm not sure if we kept it in the book or not, but he said Japan as a far west. We did not keep it. (laughs) What's brilliant about this is the fact that um, it transforms the idea of east and west as exclusive, as you coined it, to something different, to something that understands that the globe is round; it's, it's a sphere. It's there's no real East, there's no real West. We can look at it from different angles, and that um, certainly in the late in the 20th century, from the 19th century onwards, during the 20th century, and certainly in the 21st century, we are aware that the discourse of exclusive East and West is not legitimate, I would say, anymore, because um, the cultural um, transposition and interference and transformation is so dramatic. We drive Japanese cars, we eat uh, sushi in the West. Everything is just completely kind of mixed up. We can't really make these dichotomies anymore. And I think it's a good thing in the sense that in the past we were too far apart to be able to understand, to negotiate, but currently, or through the last 150 or nearly 200 years, there has been a process of um, negotiation and transformation and um, the way cultures have moved Around to become something which is new in the sense that um, I don't think that just talking simply about Eastern West is um, as easy as uh, one would imagine. And therefore, Japan as a far West is a very strong. Um, supposition in the sense that it c- holds together the imaginary idea of farness. Japan is far. Normally, you know, it was the Far East, but once when we say the Far West, we understand that the two terms have collapsed, and the far can also be something very near, as the term suggests here.
0: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
2: Um, I think that the problem with setting up East-West is that it appears as a binary when in reality um it wasn't a binary of east and west. Um I think that it was Japan thinking about the rest of the world. And maybe from the Meiji perspective there was an imagined West. But I think and I, I, I think that some of the slogans, such as like Wakan yosai, um meaning Japanese spirit and Western learning um, from the Meiji period, or thinking about like the idea of yoga, Western painting, or any of those things, shows that there was an idea of what a West could be. But where was that? I think is the constant question that we we always um, need to be thinking about. And I think that um, when we say East and West, a lot of times that doesn't allow for a lot of um, subtleties. So as Ayala has mentioned, a lot of colonialization or imperial ideas, certainly places like Okinawa or Hokkaido, um, or Taiwan or Korea, where do those fit in an East and West concept? Um, and I think that the idea of of the West as this kind of monolith also is is something that's tricky, right? I mean, certainly the status of the United States as a, a settler colonial um, nation was a very different idea than what um, Japanese people would have seen in looking to Europe. And I think if we think about Oleg's chapter where he's talking about this concept of borrowed um, medievalism and concepts of militarism in uh, the context of castles, um, if you look to Europe, there were castles and there was this invented idea in the 19th century of what those castles may have meant. And I think that Japan was um, in his chapter, he shows how Japan was really, thinking about that concept of medievalism and militarism. But if you look at somewhere like the United States, um, there's a cut off history, right? And so there's a totally different understanding of what um, this kind of architecture or medievalism or militarism could be. And in the United States, on my own campus included here in Tennessee, we have this kind of invented medieval architecture. So... um, I think that it's really a very complicated world now and in the 19th century. And I think that just setting up those binaries doesn't really work because um, East and West were these kind of imagined concepts that were very unstable and um, continue to be unstable today in how people um, utilize them for different reasons, be it political, social um, or cultural, however people use them, um, I think that there's a lot of um, difficulty in thinking about that binary. And we, I hope that we complicated it um, in the book in a way that is really meaningful, um, and in a way that shows how we really view this as kind of a um, problematic binary.
3: Yeah, that's such a that's such a great point, and actually, it's my favorite argument from the uh, in the book, and how how all the chapters. Um, demonstrated this point from various examples. And um, I want to connect this with my next question about national identity. So this notion of national identity seems to be another frequent topic in some of these chapters. Uh, From a art historian's perspective, what roles did visual culture play in constructing the Japanese identity during this time period?
2: Um, Well, I think that it really took on a variety of roles. And I mean, visual culture is so broad. And I think that as is evidenced by the, the different types of material that we're looking at, and that our authors are looking at in the book, it can be everything from a two dimensional woodblock print to a three dimensional ceramic object used for the elites to a castle or the way that that castle is depicted on a postcard. I mean, it's just such a broad way of defining nation. And I think for me, one thing that's really important to think about is that um, there were certainly intentional ways that Meiji visual culture was constructed. You know, if we think about um, the way that um, universities were formed or the national arts system with the national treasure system was formed, there was a certain intentionality in many aspects. But in other ways, there was a lot of ad hoc um, behavior that was going on. So it wasn't always a top-down, intentional set of here's what we're going to do. Um, Sometimes it was just, um, for example, in my own chapter, thinking about how would block prints reutilized in, there wasn't a a propagandistic government push to um, put out a certain Um, type of visual culture, it was really publishers who were working with artists who were kind of responding to a zeitgeist of how, um, what did people want? What was going to be popular in the public market? And if we think about postcards, also in the, the late part of the Meiji period, that's also not anything that's very, you know, intentional, necessarily, it's something that was responding to market demand. So I think that visual culture can be, in some ways, There's some easy ways to trace it through if we look at some of the um, national um, salons, for example, or if we think about how um, the government was trying to promote a certain visual culture through the world's fairs. But there's also a lot of around the margins, um, what were people interested in and how did The citizens of Japan view their own nation, be it in terms of the colonial state, be it in terms of um, the types of things that they were purchasing, or um, even in the types of things that they were seeing. So in um, Emiko Yamanashi's chapter, she's talking about how artists were... um, Designing murals for public spaces. So these are places where people would have been, not places that people would have, um, the citizens would have decided on. But artists were thinking about how to create a public space and um, how to what types of images would have made sense in a large mural in a public space. So I think that it's really tricky um, and such a, a broad question. And I think um, you know the diversity of material in the book I think really shows how. Um, you know, that question is is important and how that question of how visual culture defines nation or nation defines visual culture is really something that's almost unanswerable um, in any sort of concise way.
3: I definitely so, agree.
1: Uh, I think that one way of understanding how national identity is being constructed is on a negative term. Which means that a lot of um, nationalist discourse is based on what we are not. We are not like the Chinese. In the case of Japan's modernity, we are probably like the West, but we have to define ourselves as different to the West in those and these ways. So um, I think, like for example. Um, my argument in the chapter about um, the separation between Japanese and Ainu the Ainu are primitive, the Ainu are not able, the Ainu are not part of what we aspire to be. Let's therefore we can project our modernity over them and exploit the land because we are modern, therefore, we are eligible, they are not, and then we can. Um, erase them. Um, in another volume that I've edited, somebody wrote about the education system in Okinawa, and uh, it was very similar in the sense that um, Japanese values and culture and language, obviously, were brought to Okinawa, erasing the local culture to produce national identity, that even for those who were um, assimilated or occupied towards or into the Japanese system, the idea of um, using or erasing other cultures for the sake of establishing my own was part of the process. So in this sense, the idea of national identity can be very negative because it is often more often than not, based on the idea of erasing the other within and kind of making cleansing processes of something which is identified as different or not uh, totally equal and trying to um, proceed forward. And we can find this kind of spirit in many of the writings of the Meiji of trying to exclude other bodies of culture to establish something that was identified as national or Japanese. And part of um, the problem with Okakura Kakuzo, the art theorist and um, his relationship with philosophy, also, but mainly his way of writing things and the way he, articulated his ideas um, towards the 20th century or the early 20th century was to establish something that did not recognize what we have uh, pointed as probably the most important part, the hybridity and the assimilation and the negotiation and the, the fact that Japan had created its place through these processes of exchange and being in contact with other cultures. But in the imagination of the nationalist discourse, it was about the exclusion of other cultures from within Mm. and trying to establish something that was coherent, singular, unique, and closed within. And therefore, what we have tried to do is to actually identify a soft form of national identity in the sense of recognizing that even the national, with quotation marks, identity of Japan is including many other elements that were assimilated within. And it's not a purifying discourse that try to exclude other forms of Culture, but actually to think of them as included and therefore probably um, identified the national element in Japanese culture as, pa- as part of this hybridity discourse that we think is so important and dominant in the Meiji and onwards.
3: I guess you've already answered a part of my next question, but <laughs> my, my last question is going to be this really broad one, which um, comes back to our um, discussion about modernity again. So in the book, um, the chapters together address three key aspects of Meiji visual culture, mediation, assimilation, and hybridity. Um, we are, You are kind of already talked about this uh, nationalistic environment of the Meiji period and onwards. So um, in terms of the role of visual culture in Japan's cultural production, um, both during the Meiji period and after, how do you see they either uh, speak to or defy the intellectual context or the social and political context of the time?
1: So uh, talking about Meiji intellectuals, I will definitely look into the writings and ideas of Fukuzawa Yukichi, who was a major intellectual, somebody who contributed dramatically to shaping ideas through the Meiji and um he was the one who probably led in a fierce way the idea that Japan has to leave asia and associate itself with europe to adopt european ideas european practices european media media etc and to become a western culture for him japan should have traveled all the way to um, the the islands should have been attached to Europe. In his discourse, so um, as a leading intellectual, his ideas I think influenced a lot of fields, um, from economy to uh, social, pol- political uh, p- structures, etc., and. Um, A proxy of that will be Okakura Kakuzo, who also, in a way, was influenced by Fenelosa, Ernest Fenelosa, who was an American who came to Japan and tried to establish the field of art history. But Fenelosa himself had um, somewhat been influenced by the ideas of Fukuzawa. Nevertheless, he also thought about Japan as an art museum, as a territory that encompasses the arts of Asia, but becoming a unique um, territory of these arts, giving them their own interpretation. At a certain point, he got rid of Fenelosa and carried on on his own um, endeavor to create um, a new discourse. So these kind of intellectuals that... Um, had very strong ideas while I think Alison and I and the way we edited the book was not on a strong volume, on a strong sense that declared, you know, this is in, this is out, this is yes, this is no. We actually sort of... Pos- Proposed a different way of looking than the classical intellectuals of the Meiji were more determined in the spirit of the 19th century one should admit because the 19th century was a binary uh, system of right and wrong white and black do and don't and so they kind of adopted this spirit into their discourse and had very strong declarations of what is right and what is wrong, how things should be or shouldn't be. But we don't. We we express a very different point of view, a 21st century point of view, which is softer, which is more ambivalent, which can recognize different streams at the same time, the hybridity of things, that things are not black and white and yes or no, and that so even if the intellectuals of the 19th century did have a strong position and had. Significant influence on what was the production of the period. Our interpretation of the period brings a different point of view and different evaluation of these processes, and sort of position a set of question marks or a set of what I call ambivalences or in betweenness or you know these gray areas that the intellectuals of the 19th century had a hard time to recognize or didn't want to recognize or were um, obeying the demand of the era, the zeitgeist of do and don't in a very strict way. So we kind of helped them to reconcile the possibilities and produce something new out of this sort of binary um, views that they offered at the time.
2: And I think that the title of the book in itself really embodies a lot of that spirit that we were trying to um, convey. So thinking about visual culture instead of using that term instead of the term art, or thinking about negotiation and transition um, instead of thinking about a specific moment or a specific change. Um, I know that in our field, there's been a lot of discussion about um, making sure that we don't have these kind of, you know temporal lines in the sand, that there's a lot of threads that go before Meiji that continue into Meiji. And that by the same token, there's also a lot of threads that are in Meiji that continue into Taisho Showa, you know, post-war and and, uh, and World War II have a lot more in common than they do different. Um, so thinking about how the change of visual culture is a slow evolution. And also just thinking about um, how it's not just the binary of East and West, as we talked about before, but that the very um, types of material culture, as I mentioned, that we're looking at in the book are things that historically, you know, somebody like Fenollosa wouldn't have thought about, right? So Meiji woodblock prints were something that he kind of, Okakura and Fenollosa famously didn't really look at as um what they considered fine art and thinking about um, castles, thinking about murals, thinking about um, watercolor, right. And a variety of different types of art and um, art outside of that historic idea of just yoga and Nihonga um, and really kind of considering how visual culture is much more of a spectrum and um, how there's a lot more to be learned, if we look at this from a very broad uh, viewpoint.
1: I just wanted to add that the very last chapter of the book is also taking literature into the visual arts, which is also, I think, an interesting point of view, because uh, the author, Evelyn Schultz, was looking into the relationship between literature, architecture, and the print. And even to some degree to photography, but this kind of uh, cross point between the media, you know, the writing word, the um, ability to look into space through architecture or urban architecture. She's specifically talking about the images of Tokyo in literature and then in prints and how these were negotiated. So even bringing such a, st- a text that um, is overcoming the dichotomy of visual culture into bringing how visual culture can be described through text is also a very important part. So this, the flexibility that we uh, recruited to the book to bring this kind of uh, soft borderlines or uh, diffusive membranes between the different media was something that was important for us rather than drawing stiff lines or, you know, borderlines and walls that cannot be crossed, just the opposite of that. Absolutely.
3: That's really well said. And I really appreciate you indulging with this uh, very, very broad question. Well, thank you both so much, um, Ayala and Ellison, for this wonderful conversation. It has been absolutely enlightening. Thank you. And we really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Yi. And for our listeners who want to learn more about Japan's visual culture and modernity, check out this book, The Visual Culture of Meiji Japan, Negotiating the Transition to Modernity by Drs. Ayelet Zohar and Alison Miller. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. I will see you soon again.